You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Our main story today is about Returnal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we got some people with that. You shared a, a tweet with me where someone yeah. thought you had made a mistake. That was wonderful. Yeah, that's exactly what we were going for. And of course, it is not Returnal. But although we should maybe mention that apparently our last week's episode on Returnal was so successful that Sony directly afterwards decided to purchase Housemark. Yes, we've uh, they've sent us their letter of thanks. We've returned it in kind. We expect a parade in our honor very shortly. Yes. <laughs> Why don't we do that with further further acquisitions as well? We basically yeah. we're basically scouting the field. But I think it's a very good a very good decision to make for Sony to purchase a studio like Housemark. You know, because as I've I've mentioned in uh, last week's episode. Uh, Housemark has been around producing very high quality and very critically praised titles for PlayStation consoles for many years now. I think since 2014, if I'm not if I'm not off base here with the with Super Stardust. I think so. We mentioned that. Yeah, it was a I think an, an exclusive, and I, I was uh, in in preparation for our later side quest. I was playing through the new Ratchet and Clank game, and all the Sony produced games you know they have that sony logo at the start where flashes the game um play through it and i was just thinking how how exciting that you know that may be a future housemark kind of game you know getting the the full branding on it very good it's a deep compliment to the work that housemark did here a deep compliment that we also made in our last week's episode on returnal which by the way dear listeners if you haven't heard it yet then you should definitely do that because it was an especially fun one um, but I think also it's a good opportunity for such a studio like Housemark, which is relatively small, um, to grow a bit and to build on, you know, what they've done to go further in the direction of Returnal, because I think that was their biggest game to date. It's exactly what you want to see with interesting work like that. It's getting a chance to be springboarded into the mainstream. As you know, dear listeners, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that's why this show is free and independent, without advertisements, without a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. Every little bit helps, so if you wish to contribute, then we would be most humbly grateful. Please go to patreon.com slash withaterriblefate to find out more. And actually, we can really, this time, it is more true than ever before in the history, the short history of this podcast so far, <laughs> that this is also a statement directed or aiming at the freedom of knowledge, right? And the free distribution of, of knowledge, because we're going to do something, we're going to introduce a new format today. We're going to do a reading circle. This is something that we announced last week already. Um, we're going to go through some essential readings from the vast domain of game studies. And we do this for beginners, of course, for people who are curious about video game, what video game studies is, who might want to get into it in the future. So what we can clearly disclaim up front is that you don't have to have read the text that we're going to talk about, right? We're going to explain in such a way that you can still understand and enjoy this episode, even if you haven't read along. It is also for students who are currently studying video games or any kind of related subject. 
And it is, of course, also for people who have a little bit more experience because something that I have learned over the years is that when I teach uh, classes in game studies, I talk a lot about, you know, Johann Hosinger's Homo Ludens, which is the text that we're going to talk about today. And uh, every time I, I learn, every time I engage with this text, I find new aspects, I hear new perspectives on it, discussing it with different students, because I'm also not just a lecturer, not just a teacher, I'm also learning from in every class that I teach. So yeah, even if you're a colleague who has already some experience in the field of game studies, then please feel free to stick around because this is also for you. Yeah, I think like any like any good work, whether it's a, a movie or a video game or, you know, academic work, talking about those, uh, I think it's valuable to go back to a piece of writing and get different perspectives on it because it fleshes it out in a way that you may not have thought um, previously. There's always more to learn. And that's why we're going to do this reading circle as an irregular format. I'm not sure. It will probably not be uh, monthly for the time being because it always requires quite some some effort and some time in our schedule. Um, but maybe bi-monthly or something of the sort. It will also depend on your feedback out there. Because if you listen closely and if you like what you hear, then uh, please feel free to let us know on social media or via an email to a podcast at withaterriblefate.com. We'd gladly appreciate some feedback, especially when it comes to these new formats that we experiment with. And a last tiny remark for those that have been around for uh, quite a while following Pixel Discourse, my previous show, I know we've done reading circles there before, and we've spoken, we've, we spoke about hosing us homo ludens there as well. But we're going to start over here at the beginning to bring everyone along. And obviously, even if we read the same text, our discussion is not going to be identical. It's Homo Ludens New Game Plus. New Game Plus, exactly. <laughs> we start basically at the very beginning. Because Homo Ludens, it is an iconic early work in game studies. It is one of the most cited books in the discipline. It was published in 1938, and that should also be a giveaway that this book is not about video games. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Johann Huizinger. <laughs> Nostradamus Huizinger. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have that glass bowl, uh, although he did certainly uh, initiate a huge discussion and open up a new perspective, I would say, on games and on the phenomenon of play. He was a Dutch cultural historian, and maybe without going too deep into biographical details, he was a, a de dedicated campaigner against the Nazi persecution of Jews. Um, this I mentioned because it also affects his work, not necessarily in the first part of the book that we're going to talk about, but throughout the as the more you progress reading through this book, the more you understand that it also is to a certain degree an engagement with uh, fascism. And um, yeah, he, he was actually imprisoned um, for several months. His writings were banned in, in 1943. You know, it was like the, the, the Germans, um, they annexed the, the Netherlands, right? They invaded the Netherlands. Hmm. His writings were banned and he actually died in 1945. So he wasn't so lucky as to see uh, what happened after the war. Um, he had some unspecified illness. I couldn't quite find out what exactly the cause of his death was. And what makes him so special is that he engages with the cultural history of games and of uh, play. And indeed, this is something that will be the main uh, subject that we need to talk about. He writes the entire history of culture as one that is rooted in play. 
So it's a very ambitious cultural anthropology. He doesn't just say like play is some kind of part of culture or play some kind of role. No, but he says like it precedes culture. Everything that we, like all the cultural developments in some way tie back into the phenomenon of play. And we're going to read the first 13 pages because the entire book would be too extensive, um, which entails this, uh, this uh, very, a very famous definition of, of the phenomenon of play or of games. We're going to get into that in a second. I'll be fully transparent. I had never read any of his work prior to this, um, prior to our reading circle, which surprised me because I, my, my academic background is in religious studies, not the, not the practice of, I wasn't training to be a priest or anything, but the study of religious practices. And what I found so interesting about um, this, this bit that we read in particular and what he sets up is something that you alluded to, Stefan, which is he, he doesn't treat play as a separate thing to be dissected. He's, he's making the argument that it, it cannot be ripped apart from reality or from culture or from you know, the, the world that we inhabit. It's not something that you can just put on, on a pedestal and say, that is play, we will talk about that separate from our daily life. Um, which is a very uh, sort of religious studies-centric view of how we should be looking at what we do every day and how we live our lives. Yeah, he makes that very clear already in his opening statement, I think. The first sentence of the book is, is a pretty strong one. He says directly on page one, quote, play is older than culture. For culture, however inadequately defined, always presupposes human society. And animals have not waited for man to teach them their playing, end quote. Great opening line. <laughs> it's like a very, I think, very simple observation that he makes, a very straightforward argument, as you would wish for in like an academic thesis. It's not always the case, unfortunately, but <laughs> very clear statement up front. So he says that we know that dogs are playing, right? We can observe that animals already have an understanding, some understanding, not necessarily the same, but some understanding of, of play. And because of that, we can assume that play preceded culture because culture requires us humans to get involved and play doesn't necessarily. Games are not just, and this is one of the, one of the most important arguments he makes, they're not just physical reactions. He, he attributes meaning to games. Um, he says, all play means something, end quote. And I find that this, the step that he then takes in this first, in these first, on these first few pages is that he engages with definitions of play and academic engagements with play as they have been established at the time. Engagements that were physiological and psychological, right? You think about play as something that has some kind of function. Yes, and I think that there's there's a sense that, you know, it's not it's not something that's engaged in frivolously. It's something that that has a deeper meaning that we just have inherent to us and that we're expressing through the act of play, which is why I think the dog example works so well. Dog what are, you know, why would a dog Dogs don't work, so it's not like they would have to say, and now we're going to play, right? They, it's something that they're doing. It's something that we engage in, maybe even without thinking about it. One thing I, I wanted to uh, pick your brain about, Stefan, because I, I was very intrigued by um, his invocation of uh, basically linguistics, 
when he starts talking about the word fun and what that what that means. And I was wondering what what your take on that was um, in the sense that it, it's not something that is easily translatable across languages. And I, I first of all, I wanted to hear your thought on on the German translation he gives and what that how that would look maybe today. I, I don't know, but it, that just struck me as a really interesting um, nugget he was throwing in there that fun seems to be this strange word that only revolves around the idea of play as he's describing it. Yeah, that is definitely something that if I were to edit that text, I would probably apply Occam's <laughs> razor there and would say like, Johan, you know, just leave it out. Maybe it's not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not an integral part to his argument. Yeah. He does say that in English, there's the word fun, which uh, most concisely expresses what we experience when we play. But that in many other languages, in most other languages, there's no such equivalent. Um, and he he translates it to Dutch and says like Adigkeit, which uh, is somehow related to the German Art and Wesen, which is, you know, um, something that is uh, a, an essence of being. Hmm. Like it is part of your of your being. It's this Teil deines Wesens, we would say in Germany. It's part of your being. It's just, it's irreducibly an integral part of you and and what you are, basically. I see. It's kind of pointing to his his effervescent idea of of play, this, this thing that can't be nailed down, maybe. Yeah, it can't be nailed down, and it's something that is deeply entrenched within us. Something that is, uh, he says, something that is not just there to fulfill another function, because that's, I think... One of his most interesting arguments, he says when when we look at arguments that are made about play at the time when he was writing, but also today, then most arguments gear somewhat in the direction of, let's say we, dogs play so they can obtain skills to fight later on. You know, that's why their play is so similar to fighting. Or playing, just like for humans, you know, or playing could be there for relaxation or to get rid of an excess amount of energy that we have within us. We have this excess amount and there's just like a biological need that we play in order to get rid of it. That would be an explanation of play that would be very oriented on the materialistic level. Right. And he rejects those explanations. He says like, <laughs> well, he, says, he says they're not necessarily wrong, but they could all, all of them could individually be true without contradicting one another. And that indicates to him, at least, that uh, this can't be a proper, properly solid explanation of what play actually is. It can all be part of it. Sure, you can have an excess amount of energy. And so, you know, you play some soccer and or football. And afterwards, <laughs> you, <laughs> what do you say? In the US, it's uh, soccer. It's soccer. Right? Yeah. It's soccer. Uh, the whole world says football and we say okay. soccer. So. Yeah, over here it's football. Yeah. And <laughs> so, and this is, I think, particularly interesting because when I think about how when nowadays, when you talk about why you play, mm. then these external explanations pop up pretty quickly. Huizinga says, they all start from the assumption that play must serve something which is not play, that it must have some kind of biological purpose, end quote. Like we would say in the context of, uh, you know, think about the, the killer video game debate that we had, right, around the, around the millennium. The argument was like, hey, it's, it's a problem, it's dangerous, but yeah, but you can learn some hand-eye coordination. 
or you can build your your team skills. Like play is not discussed as something that is in any way valuable in itself, but just something that has some kind of function that is not play. Well, and I think that um, because I can hear, so Aaron is not with us today, but I can hear him in my head <laughs> talking about um, these uh, these issues with when when we try to when we try to lump a bunch of different definitions into a singular definition of a term like play, we run the risk of um, coming into these kind of things that don't make sense. And I think that a good example is okay. One one way to look at dogs playing with each other is like you mentioned stuff on that they are, you know, they're getting out their aggression. They're maybe they're they're training, you know, practicing for the event, you know, the capital E event, whatever that may yeah. be, hunting or killing, whatever it is. But then you think, okay, well, perhaps, but then if you apply that to people playing a video game or another example that, that um, Hoisinga gives us, uh, players on a stage, they're not practicing for, you know, players engaged in um, uh, a stage play of Hamlet, they're not practicing for killing uncles and coups and all of this thing. They're just, they're, it, so that can't be right in that case, right? So there, may, there must be some other things going on with how we look at play and, and what it means to us. Yeah, and I think you can, in the, in the example of that theater stage, you could maybe legitimately say that if we, uh, if we act in such a play or if we watch such a play, then we still learn something about values and so on. It's, uh, Hoisinger, he doesn't, he doesn't say that play can't have any biological functions or any moral functions or ethical functions, but that these functions are not the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, the ultimate function of play, basically. They're yes. all, they're, they can all be part of it. But ultimately, he says, play has, the goal of play is play itself. There is no, there is no ulterior motive. And he says that, he's got this beautiful quote in there, page three to four, he says, quote, the very existence of play continually confirms the supralogical nature of the human situation. Animals play, so they must be more than merely mechanical things. We play and know that we play, so we must be more than merely rational beings, for play is irrational. End quote. It's a wonderful quote. <laughs> it is a wonderful quote, right? Yes. Because it alludes to this idea of, you know, what makes us humans human. Yeah. And one of the key uh, ideas since the Enlightenment is that we are homo sapiens, right? Um, reason is what distinguishes us from, from animals and from, from other beings. And uh, Heusinger kind of says, mm, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, yeah. we're, maybe we are special because we, are, we, are, we have the ability to be irrational if we want to, <laughs> you know? Yes. And not only that, but we have the ability to reflect on that irrationality and yeah. try to formalize it, which he later goes on to talk about the rules, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We can give it a framework. We can give it a form. We can be more than rational beings because we play. <laughs> Engaging in irrationality is a wonderful way to think of play. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is actually. I mean, for, for yeah. Hoisinger, it's irrational because, yeah, I mean, why is it irrational? Because it's not like you're immediately gaining something from it. 
you could probably do, that's often also something that we can always tie this a little bit into contemporary discourse, right? Mm. Uh, uh, before I play video games, uh, it's a waste of time, you know? I'd rather do something productive, you know? I'd rather like, you know, I'd rather like... Like the, read a book or, or yeah, go outside or something. <laughs> go outside is the classic, right? <laughs> I'd rather go outside. I'd rather hang out yeah. with friends. And uh, I wouldn't judge anyone who rather goes out out with friends. I also appreciate that very much. But right. uh, what I like about Hoisinger is that he takes place so seriously that he would say, um, yeah, but the fact that it is basically a, a waste of time, it, it, well, first of all, it's not a waste of time, but <laughs> the fact that it doesn't have a goal that you work towards, that is all part of it. That is the entire point. And if you say that that's basically, it is pointless that it doesn't have a point, then you're missing the point. Oh my God, what am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite part of academic discussions, is sentences like what you just said, Stefan. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that, you know, another example that he gives, um, uh, just uh, sort of at the end of page four, um, because he's talking about sort of what, what goes on what goes on when we engage in play um, in certain circumstances? And he says, um, or take myth, this too is a transformation or an imagination of the outer world, only here the process is more elaborate and ornate than in the case with individual words. In myth, primitive man seeks to account for the world of phenomena by grounding it in the divine. This is, by the way, if I had to give a pitch for religious studies, there you go. That's that's what that's what looking at ritual and... and um, and, uh, you know, sort of the difference between the, the sacred and the profane and all of this. And I think that, you know, we talk about video games or stories or, or engaging in any kind of play as being uh, a waste of time, right? But I really do think that what he's alluding to with myth is that when we engage in these incredibly imaginative worlds where we put ourselves in the role of a character in it or when we are out from the outside looking in and experiencing it, we are processing something within our minds that we could maybe not otherwise have put into words. So we use, we use these stories, we use play to make profane the sacred, this ineffable effervescent idea that we can't otherwise nail down. Yes, exactly. That is also an important aspect that uh, using as idea of play is relatively broadly conceptualized, right? Language, he uses as an example, as you just mentioned, with individual words because of wordplay, you know, because of the way that, um, I mean, just a, an example that I had to think of while I was reading this, um, this time around, um, is uh, kanji, actually, because you you and I were both, uh, you are very, very much fluid in the, in the Japanese language, and I'm studying at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> when it's like... When, when you learn kanji, which as all of our listeners out there probably have seen in some form at least as things that look like incomprehensibly complicated pictograms, mm. their meaning often is a play on different meanings. Yes, a representation. A representation of some form. And it is like when I, when I read about the history of kanji, then it often comes up this idea that uh, people would like just make associations with things, you know, and yes. eventually it's, if you wouldn't know this chain of associations, that doesn't make sense to you. But it is all like a form of a playful engagement with what you want to represent, basically. And I would say that 
this speaks so a particular form of play, a puzzle, I think speaks mm. to what kanji is because there has to be there's something about play. I love the kanji example where it's not it is inherent to us, but it's not necessarily intuitive because there is a form to it. You have to know the rules. And I think what's so great about kanji is so Stefan, in our Discord chat, you sent me a message uh, about my cat and you used the mm. kanji for Nico, which is cat. And what I love about it is if you have no idea what it is, if you have no sense of it, you don't you you can't see anything in the in the lines. But if I told you it means cat, you would see a cat in the pictogram. Um, you would be able to see, I, I understand why they put that together. So there's this almost kind of fun, when you have that realization, like putting a puzzle together, where if you know just enough of the rules, you can really get a lot out of play or <laughs> the kind of fun that we engage in. Yeah. And it, it enables you to do all kinds of fun things with with words to come up with poetry to come up with you know, mythology, which is in itself like a very playful engagement with uh, the cosmos, with everything that's around you. The myth, the ritual, yeah, all of these things. Yeah. You, you mentioned in our pre-discussion already that the ritual is one thing that particularly intrigues you about this text. And I think, yes. um, yeah, because the interesting thing is that Hösinger, he doesn't necessarily distinguish between play and seriousness. He says it's one crucial mistake that we often make is that we assume that play is not serious or play is the opposite of serious. Like you're playing too much, you know, to be serious. Yeah, get serious. Stop playing around. Stop playing around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seven, I, I wanted to ask you this, not not to cut you off, but I I got the distinct impression that when when uh when he says um so on on page five, when he says he's talking about the um the Shakespearean idea that all all of life is a stage and all of us only players. Um, I I don't know if it was just how it came off to me the second or third time I read that, but did you get the sense that he was kind of uh, put off by that? Like it kind of annoyed him a little bit <laughs> that people kind of go with that idea and maybe think of that as a as a form of play acting or engaging in play. Yeah, I think it is a bit salty when he says yeah. about this about this idea that people would compare life to uh, uh, like a stage act he says quote on closer examination this fashionable comparison of life to a stage proves to be little more than an echo of the neoplatonism that was then in vogue with a remarkably moralistic accent which to me just says uh shakespeare was obsessed with pop culture <laughs> I think it's a very interesting remark that he makes there because this comparison of the world to a stage is, you know, at the time when Hösinger was writing, um, it had come out of fashion again, right? It was like long after, long after the great works of Shakespeare. Um, however, what he couldn't have known is that soon after uh, Hösinger was active, a new framework of sociological thought would emerge, uh, such as the works of Irving Goffman, mm. who fund fundamentally develops like an idea of, um, of a theatrical glance at the world. So this idea of comparing life to a stage act is something that is still very much popular. And I think Hösinger was maybe a little bit a little bit quick to brush it aside as in 
that was basically just some Neoplatonism that's now particularly not particularly relevant <laughs> right. anymore. And and also, I can't help but feel like what he was saying there was you're taking yourself too seriously. Yeah, you know, have a little more fun with it. It doesn't have to be black and white like that. Yeah, yeah, seriousness. Seriousness is a subject that he talks about um, also in like in contrast at first in contrast to play, and then he shows that um, it's this is an insufficient understanding of saying we've got play on the one hand and seriousness of the other because he says that play can be very serious, right? When you play football, you don't necessarily have an inclination to laugh, right? <laughs> or you wouldn't say you can you can play. And if you've ever seen someone like in an Overwatch match, in a competitive Overwatch game, oh, then yeah. you know play can be very serious. And I would say too, Stefan, what's the... Uh, I don't know if you can read my mind, but what's the worst thing to say to somebody who's in that that serious mode of play? It's just a game. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep, exactly. You don't understand. Yeah, and, and why is that? Huizinga has an answer to that. Why is that such an insulting uh, sentence? Um, the reason why it is is because from the standpoint of Huizinga, he says that all play... It takes place in the form of magic circle. We can go a little bit more into what exactly that means in a second. But for him, the worst crime in play is not if you cheat. Because if you cheat, then you at least acknowledge the existence of that magic circle. But if you are a spoil sport, if you don't acknowledge the play, if you don't acknowledge the magic circle, if you say, ah, it's just a game. It's like when you play chess with someone or a game of Civ online or whatever and that person is just like it's just the game I don't care you know it's just the game then it ruins the entire game for you because you think like oh come on we have to you have to take it serious yeah. you have to be seriously committed to that game in order for it to be fun so seriousness is very much not the opposite of play or fun but it can be actually a very much contributing factor to it yeah there's nothing worse than someone taking the ball and going home Exactly. Right? That's, a, that's a spoil sport. I mean, there's no better way to put it. But it does it does kind of get to this, um, uh, and and maybe, you know, I, I haven't read much farther into this. I think I read I read further than we were meant to today, um, just about the rituals and things. But um, mm. I, I do wonder if it uh, if he goes into, you know, this idea further that because we because we formalize those things and we we have we have the magic circle and we say if you are engaging in this game you're kind of engaging in a contract with me saying that we will both be abiding by these rules or at least acknowledging them um and the the kind of worst thing you can do is almost i don't know if he would say break the illusion is that fair do you think yeah he even uses that phrase to say breaking the illusion but he ties the word illusion back to in lugio and then ties it mm. back to ludo to ludens to play so I basically <laughs> illusio is basically to be in play there we are well <laughs> <laughs> yep he talks about these things like the the fairness the the requirements of fairness and of a mutual contract especially in the later parts of the book when he talks about also warfare as play there's some very <laughs> controversial ideas about how war is actually, <laughs> <laughs> to a certain degree, also play. Um, but uh, for 
the time for the point where we're at in the book, we now come to this uh, very popular definition, this very popular definition of play that he developed, and it has like several small aspects that I would briefly, uh, briefly bring up. The first aspect that he brings up is that all play is vo- is a voluntary activity. He says, "Quote: Play to order is no longer play." It could at best be a forcible imitation of it, end quote. I, that goes back to the word fun, I think, or that that difficulty in trying to assign a label to it. But it is helpful because you would say, if, and I've had this happen when I was, when I was a kid, if you had a particularly, you know, boorish friend who said, we're going to be playing this game, and it felt like there was no choice, you would say, this isn't fun, yeah. you know, or I'm not having fun anymore. And I think everybody's experienced that. Once you're made to do something, it, it changes the dynamic very, very seriously. And I would even go so far as to say, if you are like, if you're if you're a kid in school and you got a couple of bullies who say like, yeah, we need another person for our football game, and hey, you you play along, otherwise we beat you up. <laughs> play by coercion. <laughs> yeah. Then the thing is that play to order, right? And you're yeah. Actually, Huizing, I would say that is not even playing. You're not playing, you're just pretending to play in order not to get beaten up. But you can't play while being forced to do so. It's actually, it's like a, it's a, it's categorically impossible because play must be a voluntary activity. And I, I feel, and I've, I've written an article about this a couple of years ago, actually. Mm. I, I have the strong suspicion that the idea of us having to play involuntarily is something that's deeply rooted within our culture. I think of the Saw movies. I want <laughs> to play a game, you know? There's nothing creepier <laughs> yeah. than knowing that you're being some kind of, that you're being forced in a game that you don't want to be part of. I think of, um, was it was it uh, here, Harry Potter and the, the Goblet of Fire, where his name oh, is yes. thrown into that tournament and he has to play and compete, even though he originally didn't want to at all. And it turns out to be very dangerous. My girlfriend and I just watched that about maybe oh. a week ago. And yeah, he, he was forcibly entered and then he was told explicitly, you cannot back down. You have to engage in this. That's terrifying. There, there are entire films about this. I, in, in this article that I wrote, I spoke about The Game, a film with Michael Douglas. Oh, yes. Uh, where he, yeah, where he receives a gift for, for his, uh, like a birthday gift from a friend because he wants to have a more exciting life. And it's some kind of game that he enters into and uh, he participates in it, but he doesn't know when the game starts and when the game ends. And it actually basically uh, shatters his entire existence <laughs> throughout this film without him realizing what is what is part of it and what is not. And that's very, very unsettling. Well, you mentioned the Saw movies as well. And I think that's a, that's one, that's one um, example of playing where you have no choice. The funny thing about those movies is that the antagonist says that everybody has a choice, but he's putting them in these situations against their will. Yeah. So that's kind of where the horror comes in along with all the gore and everything. But I think that um, what the game speaks to is what a lot of video games get at, which is, wouldn't it be horrible if you were an unwitting player in a game that never ended? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that just based on, on the definition that Hoisinger has given us for play is something that I think terrifies us to our core. Play has to end at a certain point. It can't just keep going. 
Yeah, isn't that the idea of being somehow forced into a game and having to participate? Um, isn't that like 90% of Japanese visual novels? Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking like, you know, Virtue's Last Reward. I'm thinking Danganronpa. Danganronpa, yeah. Yeah, all these, all these big, these big Japanese visual novels seem to be very concerned with the fear of, you know, you apply to university, you get accepted, nice, but suddenly you're in a play, you're in a game of some evil mastermind and you can't quit and you have to maybe kill someone because that's part of the rules. It's, uh, I think that is, it's just so unsettling, the idea of either being forced to play or, as you mentioned, not being aware where the boundaries are. Because you said yes. every game has to end. That's something that Huizinga also says. It's part of his definition. Every game has to end. And every game is somehow um, uh, limited in space and in time. That's his magic. That's his idea of magic circle. A magic circle is not something... I actually don't know. He manages. He he mentions the word magic circle only as a fleeting remark on a side, like in a list of examples. I don't know what exactly he means by magic circle. It's probably like some kind of game that I'm not aware of, some kind of children's game. That's what it sounded like to me. The, it, it sounded like um, you know, like hopscotch or yeah. you know, something like that, right? Where you draw a circle and you can't leave it. You have to be in there um, until it's over. Yeah, and yeah. it's just for such a fleetingly mentioned term. It's a uh, has gained huge notoriety because the magic circle basically become became the the key metaphor for the limitation of play that you have a you have a space and you have a time in which play takes place and that's a key factor there is no play that is not limited in space and time because if it isn't then it couldn't be using us says different from ordinary or quote unquote real life because there needs to be this distinction between what is play and what is not play. Otherwise, we couldn't possibly know. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't play, you know, if there was no such distinction. And to reference our Returnal discussion, uh, I think the, the terror of that comes from, imagine a dream that never ended, mm. that you couldn't, you couldn't distinguish between reality. I think that it's very similar, where if you, if you don't bookend play, um, where's the line drawn and what are, what are you doing with your life at that point? This distinction between play and ordinary life is also one where play on the, in the way that Heusinger argues it is something that brings uh, order. It brings absolute order. And I'm saying the word, when I say it, I almost feel reminded of, reminded of John Burko, which is, you know, like the speaker of the British, uh, the British uh, underhouse, right? The British parliament. Order! <laughs> yes, as everyone loses their minds. <laughs> John Burko, he says on page 10, <laughs> um, <laughs> into an imperfect world and into the confusion of life, it brings a temporary, a limited perfection. Play demands order, absolute and supreme. I don't even know that we need to ex you know, expound on that because I feel that it's something that Anyone who plays video games recreationally will understand or who watches movies or who reads novels to, to unwind. Life is chaotic and life has, no, life has no reason a lot of the time. Sometimes things just happen and we, work our, we do our best to apply reason to it, perhaps retroactively. But you know what, what does have reason are games, play. You, you have the setup, the magic circle has rules. And that's why I think... 
Um, I love how he, so you mentioned the spoil sport and I love how he, um, he mentions, so right at the end of page 11, he says why, why we, why we feel so frustrated by people like that. He says the spoil sport breaks the magic world. Therefore he is a coward and must be ejected. And there's this sort of sense that I, I, I don't know if I agree with his term, his use of coward in that sense, but the idea that the spoil sport is someone who says, you know what, I would rather go back to the chaos than engage in this ordered sort of uh, formalized thing that we have here. It's very frustrating when you're trying to engage in play. What I have in mind when I hear his word spoil sport is I always think of that guy who like fucking kills your Tamagotchi for fun. You know, yes, that, that's <laughs> yeah. the kind of person I think of. It's like someone he he just doesn't. Like I'm saying, he I'm attributing a male identity to that. <laughs> that person just doesn't acknowledge the fact that you willingly engage in the illusion that this is a real being, you know, and just disrespects it. And you and this is something that makes me so profusely angry. <laughs> There's a sense for the spoil sport that when they say something like "it's just a game" or "I'm going home," there's this. I think strange implication there that they're they're saying that you don't understand that that you think you've bought into the illusion that you you've decided this is actually real when I don't think you know people who engage very much in a in a uh, imaginative world or in play it's not like they're deluding themselves into thinking that's reality I think they're very aware of it you willingly engage in play and in its rules you accept its rules. You you can obviously like Huizinger says that um, you know quote on page eleven the rules of a game are absolutely binding and allow no doubt end quote. Mm. I think that is right. If you add the thought that of course rules can be negotiated, but if they have been negotiated, then they are basically beyond doubt. You can't while you uh, you know when you when you lose a FIFA game. Um, you can't then say, okay, let's change the rules. Let's say the one with the lowest score wins. You know, <laughs> that's that's pointless. But if I you, have a shield, actually. You didn't get yeah, me. I have a shield. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, you, you establish the rules. And we see that all the time, right? That on, like on a schoolyard where children play, uh, they would, you know, negotiate the rules a little bit on the fly. And that's, I think, perfectly normal and doesn't speak against the fact that they are binding. Because if they are agreed on by everyone... Um, then basically you need to you need to abide by the rules. And if the rule is that if you're being being hit by the ball, then you're out. Then you can't just say like, no, I'm not. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, you're breaking you're the rules. I do agree with what you said that this uh, life is life is chaotic, and I think it is also a reason for why games like um, Candy Crush and like the, these mobile these casual mobile games puzzle games which i honestly I, I don't play them but i very much respect their existence and and the 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 joy that it gives people that play them because it feels like you know my parents do this a lot and i've been thinking about it why they do that and my personal conclusion was that yeah because life is chaotic life is unpredictable they've got a lot on their plate they've got a lot to do they may often feel overwhelmed but in playing candy crush they've got a predictable system that they can solve with clear rules it's basically like a perfect system and they can focus on it 
and they know they can solve it. It is solvable, right? No problem in a game can't be solved unless it's like buggy or something. Right, right. But you have this kind of implication that if you abide by these rules, if you engage in this illusion of play, then this is also something that gives you something. And I think also, I really like that Candy Crush example because I'm thinking of my parents and my parents, they absolutely love to watch TV series, you know, or, or movies. And that's what they, if they had infinite time, that's what they would be doing. And I think that, um, the other, the other part of the, the rule discussion is that there's, there's usually when you're talking about play a goal, there's that end that Hoisinger talks about that the play kind of has an end uh, as it starts. And I think it, there's something kind of comforting about saying, I'm going to watch all of Breaking Bad. Well, implicit in that is the goal to finish it mm. so that while you're doing it, you are actively working towards that goal and not just passively accepting whatever you're seeing or, or engaging with. Yeah, yeah. And you know, actually, I am a kind of person who waits. Uh, like before I start a series, I check, is it finished? Yes, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm uh, because I find it really tough to say I'm going to watch some Game of Thrones and it's like, okay, I'll find out how this extremely complicated conflict <laughs> moves ahead in two years' time. It took two years for the last season to come out. I'd completely forgotten what was going on in that in that world of Westeros. Yeah. So, uh, you forget the rules. <laughs> yeah, you, f you forget the rules. Yeah, and there are two aspects that Hoisinger mentions that we just can like mention very briefly because they primarily concern social play. Uh, he distinctly says that he's going to talk primarily about social playing because that is a form of playing that he finds the easiest to analyze. Um, fair enough. And uh, that includes that, first, all play community generally tends to become permanent even after the game is over, end quote. Which I think, it makes sense. Guilds yeah. emerge, uh, you know, around e like the entire phenomenon of esports and the fan communities that you have revolving around it is basically the perfect uh, example for such a permanent community. And the second one is that the game surrounds itself by a sense of of, uh, of mystery. He thinks specifically about you know like masks and disguises. I think in this in this fleeting remark, it's a relatively short section that he that he has on this. It basically is a slight hint on. Um, avatar relationships and you know how you create a sense of embodiment and create joy from um not deceiving someone which is like a really important distinction you're not trying to deceive someone because for everyone involved it's clear that that avatar just like that mask is not you that you're playing a role um, but you still have a fun engagement in embodying that role one of um and I will eventually, at some point in my life, write uh, many, many articles about the Persona series. But one of my favorite things about Persona 5 is that the opening, and this is something people, it's blink and you miss it, but the opening of Persona 5 is not a cutscene; it's a contract. And it says, for you to proceed, you have to acknowledge that this is not real. And you cannot proceed if you don't acknowledge that. And you have to sign the contract and then the game begins. And it is sort of this, you know, talking of masks, it's this idea that you are, you are, we are all agreeing that you are engaging in some sort of what could be perceived as subterfuge, but is not really deception. <laughs> I love the persona, uh, the velvet room in persona. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, on a, to put it with a 
like a social play example. It is just the idea you wear a scary mask, then you have to basically uh, agree and subscribe to the idea that you are a scary monster. And everyone else has to subscribe to the idea that you are scary and that we need to run. <laughs> and nobody actually <laughs> believes that you are a scary right. monster. Right. But we engage in this in this uh, play and pretend, and that way we can feel like a genuine excitement. I find that super interesting that you you run away from a masked person of whom you know is your friend, but you still fear such dread. You're so scared, <laughs> like as if you would really get get like slaughtered once this masked person catches you. It's like Stefan, do you? I don't know. I if you do, I I want to go to one immediately. But do you? Uh, <laughs> In Germany, do you have any kind of like, um, so in America around Halloween time in October, we have uh, haunted houses that are set up where there will be sort of trails that you walk and somebody will run at you with a chainsaw that doesn't have the band on it. So, you know, it's 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 a great example of this. I know he's not going to hurt me, but it sure feels like it, you know, mm, <laughs> it seems yeah. like he may. And I wonder, have you ever done anything like that, that, that kind of running away from a, a masked man like you were describing? Not really. I've only been to an escape room that was, uh, it was Jack the Ripper themed. And oh. yeah, it was it was pretty nice because at the end of this escape room, you would discover Jack the Ripper. You, the idea was to find his, the, the goal is find Jack the Ripper and kill him. And oh. then you already think when you're in this escape room, you think like, oh, wow, he's around somewhere. You know? And I... <laughs> And it's me or him. <laughs> yeah, and after a while, you like you, you discover him in a shelf, like in, in a closet hiding, you know, after he had committed his murder. to you like solve a lot of puzzles in the wake of which you've already received like a tiny fake pistol. And uh, and <laughs> the, the door opens and it's it's just a puppet. It's not like a, a, a person it's acting. But yeah. you subscribe to this idea that Jack the Ripper is somewhere and over the course of this puzzle solving, you like incorporate this idea more and more into your perception of the environment. And so when that shelf door opens, you just think like, ah, <laughs> <You shoot. laughs> and you shoot him <laughs> and you feel a really like a, a sense of accomplishment, even though yeah. technically you just made it through a trial of some kind of like uh, artificial obstacles that some person has set up for you in order yeah. to point a fake a piece of plastic at a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the beauty of play because in the moment it's it is what it is that is the beauty of it and Hoesinger, uh brings all of these factors that we have now discussed together in a definition which he gives on page 13 where he says it's a it's a couple of sentences but i read it out because it's such an iconic definition he says quote summing up the formal characteristics of play we might call it a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious, but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. It is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained by it. Just as a tiny remark in between, we haven't talked about that, about the specific point that much, but to me that means that if you are a professional football player, then you're not really playing, you're working. If the predominant reason for doing it is to make money. It's sort of a, a, a branching off of the play to order, right? Somebody is making you do that or you've engaged in a contract where you agree to do that. 
Yeah, that's basically his point. We, um, maybe I should mention at this point that this is also an aspect of criticism. Mm. Um, but I'll, I'll come to that in a second. I'll finish reading the definition first, proceeding with quote. It proceeds with its own proper boundaries of time and space, according to fixed rules and in an orderly manner. It promotes the formation of social groupings which tend to surround themselves with secrecy and to stress their difference from the common world by disguise or other means. End quote. Maybe we should say, because we just we're just like revolving around that point a little bit already, um, that one problem that Hösinger's definition of play has is that he doesn't really distinguish between different forms of play. So, for example, um, when we like in a in a future reading circle, we could look at a text like uh, Roger Calois' *Man Play and Games*, and there he actually like says, "Okay, cool, we have this definition of play, but not all games, not all play is the same. There is a form of play, for example, where you can gain prof profit. When you play poker, for example, you might actually get money from it." But if it's if you if you do it only to get money, then it's uh, you know like if you count cards and stuff, uh, yeah. then it might not be it might not be play. But generally, if you engage in a poker game, even if amongst friends afterwards you go home with like you know uh, twenty five more euro in your wallet, uh, then you still played and you still had fun. Yeah, and I think he does. Uh, that's interesting. That distinction because he does, I think on the very first page or maybe page two, he does talk about like why, you know, um, he does mention gambling. I'm, I was just searching through it cause I didn't, I didn't have it highlighted or anything, but I do think there's a distinction between a professional Texas Hold'em or poker player and somebody like you say, Stefan, who you engage in a fun game with your friends and maybe put a little money down and that then becomes part of the story and the and the and the game that you were playing. Like, oh yeah, I won I won uh, twenty bucks off Aaron the other day. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, for me it was interesting reading Hosinger again now because, uh, as I said at the beginning, I always find some new aspects of it. The discussion, like, um, I I don't agree with every single detail that Hosinger brings up. There are some things I think where where I feel like it's very speculative what it says what he says. It's a little bit imprecise. Um, it's also a little bit generalized as in, you know, he talks about very much in broad strokes about play in general, which is, uh, precedes all culture and so on. I'm not quite sure whether I should, would ex entirely subscribe to the idea that all culture is rooted in play, but I do find it important that he goes, he goes so far in this direction of taking play seriously because throughout many years before it has not been taken as seriously as it should have been because we've got by the you know by the mid 20th century we've got a lot of engagements with you know literature we've got uh, like at this point even we've got engagement with films and so on but games as a medium that has that is like older than human beings um, has not really received that kind of attention at least not in a sense as a cultural phenomenon and that I find is the most important point that Hoisinger adds to the conversation. I agree. And I, I think that, um, again, as someone who was ignorant to his work um, coming into this, I think that I obviously took a lot from my own personal academic background. I think he's, he's 
whether purposefully or not, or not in conversation with a lot of other um, uh, academics regarding, you know, this difference between the sacred and the profane and how we sort of formalize, um, uh, how we formalize our myth, you know, the kind of chicken and the egg question, which came first, the, the mythopoeia or the ritual, you know, it, it's, it's a fun question to ask. And I think I took a lot from that. But what I also, as somebody who just loves to play video games, I think that um, he he explained play in a way that I think um, is agreeable to people who play video games um, in the sense that I you brought up the that old argument about, you know, are, are shooting games making kids killers? And the answer obviously is no. But I think that he goes into that a little bit more and says, well, when you're playing a football game with your friends, you're not training for war. You know, it's not like you're planning to do something uh, much more intense by just engaging in a game of hopscotch with somebody. <laughs> so I think that that, if nothing else, if if people who um, uh, love video games like we do and and appreciate them for uh, what they're able to do, I think do yourself a favor and and start with this. Start with Homo Ludens because I'm going to finish it now that we've we've started it on this. Um, just because it kind of, uh, we talked a lot about formalizing it, formalized a lot of, um, just thoughts that I had on my own. And if you, dear listeners, have some wishes uh, for texts that we should engage in, that we should read and discuss on the show as part of our reading circle, then please let us know. Just, you know, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or write an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com. That was our very first reading circle on Johann Hosinger's Homo Ludens. And I would say, Dan, shall we move ahead and, ahead and talk about some Ratchet and Clank? I would love to. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about things that happened within video game culture or anything else that's on our mind. And actually, Dan, you and me, we both have been playing the same game, which is Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. We have, and I've been so excited to talk to you about this game. Um, I had such a fun time with it. It is really a great treat because it is one of the, you know, after Returnal, one of the next <laughs> big PS5 exclusives. It's very much advertised as that. It's a game by Insomniac Games. It's a long-running series. Um, I think in, it premiered on the PlayStation 2. Yes, Um uh, a fun fact, a resident uh, Kingdom Hearts expert as I am, came out in the same year. Um, and there's actually a fun nod to Kingdom Hearts and Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. But oh, yeah, really? It was, yeah, uh, it's almost 20 years old, that series. Is it a story spoiler? If you no. were to tell me? Like, no, it's... What is, it's where a, is the fun nod? I can't remember that. It's a great reference. So you can get a, um, a wrench for Ratchet that looks like a Keyblade. Ah, of course. Yeah, yep. you you collect you collect all of these golden bolts in the game, and then you can choose uh, skins. Ah, I thought it looked familiar somehow. <laughs> yes, yes. It. Uh, I thought that. Uh, you know, I I love Insomniac. I think they've just been um, producing a lot of really fun games in the past few years. Um, they've always produced fun games, but they've had sort of a renaissance. I think after the Spider Man game, and. Um, Boy, was this just a blast to play. It was a lot yeah. of fun. 
Quite literally so. It is the setup of the whole game, which is which ties into the narrative as well in, as its, I would say, technical features, because it's very much also like a show-off game for the yeah. for the PS5 as a showcase game, is that um, Ratchet, the long-standing series hero, he's the last Lombax in, in the galaxy or in his dimension. And so Clank, his robot best friend, uh, builds a dimensionator for him. The idea is so that Ratchet can travel in a different dimension where he can meet his people, so to speak, or his kind. However, Dr. Nefarious, who is, who would have guessed, pretty nefarious. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the eponymous Dr. Nefarious, he steals the Dimensionator directly at the beginning of the game. Like, we're not going to spoil it. It's directly, like, first act, literally. And uh, he becomes a fascist dictator in another dimension, in a dimension where he always wins. Well, and what's so what's so funny, too, is that he doesn't even really become one so much as he steps into the role of another character who is already doing that. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of takes over while the other guy's away. Right, that's true. That's true, because he's <laughs> longing so deeply for a win against this heroic duo of Ratchet and Clank. And in doing so, uh, Dr. Nefarious, he causes all kinds of uh, dimensional rifts where the dimensions bleed into one another. They create these purple holes uh, that allow you to also travel uh, in between dimen dimensions. This is something that they showed off directly when they when they premiered the game. This idea that you can leap from one level into another that is almost seamlessly. There are barely any loading times in the game, and I find that to be quite impressive, I must say. It is very impressive, and I think that uh, I I played through this in two sittings because I didn't... Oh. Yeah, I, I played through it very quickly. I enjoyed uh, pretty much every minute of it. There's a few bugs towards the beginning that I find a lot of people are experiencing where if you die or uh, if it has to load something, it'll just hard freeze your PS5, so that happened to me twice. Oh. Um, but that was it, just at the beginning. And then, yeah, you you almost... It's funny how much you don't notice uh, any any pauses or loading screens or anything like that. It's very seamless. It pulls you in instantly, and then they have loading times. Like, maybe we should say that this this dimensional travel in between worlds is not something that is, like, used uh, all the time. You have the option to travel like short distances when you're involved in one of the many battles that you fight against Nefarious's troops. Um, then you can basically use it like a grappling hook. And instead of you moving towards that, you basically pull a dimensional hole towards you and uh, in doing so teleport yourself to a different spot in the, on, the, on the map. But when it comes to actual travel between levels, that is something that is used only a couple of times as part of the story. And otherwise, outside of these sequences, you travel with a spaceship between the between the worlds. But even then, it is something where you have a short space travel sequence that is so quick and so fun. It's not like Super Mario Odyssey, uh, because they did, it, <laughs> did the same thing, right? Where you yeah. see like Mario flying in his in his uh what was this was it what it had a specific name i think the odyssey, the odyssey. it was the odyssey yeah. it was just the yeah. odyssey yeah you saw him traveling there. and it's, it works in the same way only much faster yes and a 
lot of interesting uh, camera work. Um, it's funny. They, I think that Insomniac are are very talented filmmakers because they they use the video game camera to also do a lot of seamless editing. There's a lot of over the shoulder moments where you can tell they're clearly loading what they're about to show you, but it feels very. Uh, very seamless, just one movement, because I'm thinking particularly of the spaceship scenes that don't feel like they take a long time either, because you see the characters get into the ship, it kind of goes behind them, you see the big vista in front of you, and then they take off. It's it's really pretty incredible how they do all of it. Yeah. And I think that uh, this to me feels kind of like, I, I loved Demon Souls, I had a really good time playing it. Um, this though feels to me like the first PlayStation 5 game. Mm. you know, the the first flagship Sony Endeavor. And I think it pulls it off pretty beautifully. It does, yeah. I just recalled while you were talking about these uh, space travel sequences and the way they can see loading times is that whenever you land on a planet, it also, like, first you have a close-up shot of your character. Yeah. And then the character gets out of the spaceship and the camera slowly shifts behind you. So that is basically the current incarnation of the infamous elevator ride sequence that you would have in many games. <laughs> Only that you don't really notice it. You don't really notice it. And that's, that is very cool. I, I must say, I know it sounds like a bit um, just geeky to talk about these technical things, especially on a podcast such as ours, and we're going to go into the story in just a moment. But yes. um, I, I must say that I was genuinely impressed by that because when I click on load game on the in the starting screen it is there almost instantly and this is something that i really enjoy especially as a person who has for a long time been playing on a standard ps4 where it was just like elaborate loading times all the time and this is just so nice to just click on it and it's right there i think you said uh this may have been on or off mic i can't remember but you had mentioned that you know loading times that usually meant for you all right time to use the bathroom or go for a cigarette now it's you don't yeah. get time for that and <laughs> rift apart you have to pause the game yeah and it's i think it shows in the fact that you say you played it all the way through in two sittings because the game pulls you in directly it has like a very straightforward story hook yes a very like a very rhythmic gameplay groove as in there's always something going on you're always involved in a lot of fighting, a lot of shooting, which Ratchet and Clank has always been good at doing. Yes. Creative fights, creative weapons. What was your, maybe because the weapons are so infamous in Ratchet and Clank, do you have like a favorite amongst the, the many weapons that you can choose from? I think, yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I was thinking <laughs> about it uh, while I was playing. And um, honestly, it became the topiary sprinkler. Yeah, uh, the topiary yeah. That was my favorite. It's a weapon that you throw down and it it sets up a sprinkler and anything the water touches turns into a hedge, basically. <laughs> and they it immobilizes them and you can hit them with other attacks. And I found that um, that was particularly helpful on, on bosses uh, just to immobilize them for a bit because there's a lot going on in every fight. It's very, I, I don't want to say hectic, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things happening on screen all at once that you have to, um, keep in in your your view while you're going through it. Yeah, it it's can nice be. To take a break. It's. I feel the same way. It's. It's so cool when you throw that sprinkler in the direction of a group of enemies and they all turn into hedges and you know, okay, for a couple of seconds I don't have to worry about those guys. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> what was your favorite? I think my favorite was the uh, probably the Rhino Eight, which is a <laughs> game that you get a, a weapon that you get only when you've 
completed a couple of collectibles, I think. You've got to com- uh, like collect all the spy bots, tiny machines that you can find that give you a little bit of extra lore. And the Rhino 8 is a weapon that utilizes this idea of dimensional rifts, as in you shoot a dimensional rift somewhere, and then something falls out of the sky, and the fun thing is that you don't know what it is. So sometimes <laughs> it's like a gigantic cow that's just like, and just crashes into the enemies. Yeah. I think that was the most fun for me to use because whenever I used it, I felt intrigued by what kind of silly thing is going to happen next. It's a just a, a visually um, uh, just hilarious game. I think I've always appreciated Ratchet & Clank because of their style of humor. Um, it's it's a strange kind of humor that to me feels... It, it's, uh, it's what Conan O'Brien would call smart stupid. Like it's, it's stupidity, but it's very well crafted and it's very fun. All the, all the different, I mean, the, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but I do want to talk briefly. Dr. Nefarious, I think made me laugh every time he was on screen, the way that they had him written and the way that he was paired up against his dimensional counterpart, who was also hilarious, but in a totally different way. Um, It was something that I wasn't prepared for and I came away from it just still laughing about certain lines and just a a wonderfully written game. Yeah, there's also a lot of humor in the details. Like, I couldn't stop chuckling through the boss fights because the boss fights are just... The bosses are constantly, like, like delivering puns while they are shooting at you. I I remember in one of the first boss fights, which is like a gigantic insect, it's like a... Uh, something peed is its name. The Seeker Peed. Seeker Peed, yes, exactly. And it has a laser at the front and it constantly shoots you with that laser. I played on the hardest difficulty. It was like really a challenge to, to go through <laughs> this fight. And in the middle of the fight, while he's shooting that laser, he says like, I cannot get enough of this laser. Can you? And then <laughs> at you again. I just found it so funny. And it is very much a game for anyone. If I had to describe it to someone who doesn't know anything about Ratchet and Clank, I would say, imagine just playing through a Pixar movie because that's yeah. exactly the kind of humor, the combination between humor and a lot going on and also like very heartfelt moments. That's exactly the combination it's trying to go for, right? And I, I want to talk about uh, that in particular because um, I remember we were we were joking in the previous episodes and, and sort of our, our off-mic meetings and things that... Oh, you know, it's Ratchet and Clank. I'm sure it won't be, we won't have a lot of deep things to say about it. And I'm not going to write a, a treatise on it anytime soon. But I will say that they, they did something that I think um, is very difficult for games that deal with alternate realities to do. So, Stefan, let me kind of pitch this to you. Um, so, okay, first of all, the setup for Rift Apart, like Stefan said, we go to another dimension. And we're introduced to Ratchet and Clank's counterparts in that dimension, Rivet and Kit. Um, And I think that this game reminded me of, and I don't know if you played this, but um, Crash Bandicoot 4, It's About Time. I haven't played that, no. It's a similar setup where they go to different dimensions and meet alternate versions of themselves. But I think that the problem that you run into with alternate stories like that is that the the alternate character has had an entire story that we don't usually we we haven't been with them on it so it's hard to connect to the alternate character and a lot of times it feels like those games almost push those characters on us and make us like feel like they're 
forcing identifying with them. This game, I think, beautifully gets around it by pairing up the alternate characters with their counterpart. Mm. So Rivet is with Clank for most of the game, and Ratchet is with Kit for most of it. So you learn about them through the characters we already know. Yeah, I do find that a very neat move, and I did enjoy it. I must say, Rivet is a super charming character, and yes. Kit is super interesting. Something that's also not a spoiler because it's very clear straight from from the get-go of Kit's story is that um, Kit struggles with, you could say, a war trauma, so to speak. And uh, Rivet has a missing arm. So they both have their backstory wounds that are developed and elaborated upon and explored throughout the game. But I must say that I found especially Ratchet and Rivet a little bit too similar. There are characters in the game that you meet alternate versions of, such as, you know, Captain Quark and so on, The like, or... Uh, something Captain Pete? Quantum Captain uh, Quantum uh, sorry yeah Pete, so Rusty Pete and Pierre Lefer <laughs> yes exactly exactly that for example Rusty Pete and Pierre Lefer I find a, a very amazing duo those two uh, alternate versions um because one is like a, a like a, a rusty crunk, cranky old the creature and the the other one Pierre is like a a, a smooth talking pirate who tries to kill you while speaking in very pretentious French dialect. Yes, a, a smooth-talking, cowardly Frenchman. <laughs> yes, yes. It is It is really a lot of fun. But Ratchet and Rivet are basically, in their characteristics, identical characters, I would say. They are a little bit too close to one another. I would have been interested, as especially I'm, I haven't played any Ratchet and, Gang, uh, and Clank games before. I would have been interested to see... Um, Rivet maybe as a character, you know, Ratchet is decisively positive. Yes. He's hopeful, he's courageous, he's like very charming. And I would have liked to see a little bit more of a rough uh, character design for Rivet that maybe over the course of time comes around. And there are such sequences, but I feel like it could have been explored a lot more. I feel maybe they were a little bit afraid of saying, okay, we're going to introduce our female Lombax and we don't want to alienate players who are basically expect a game where they play with the, with the charm with Ratchet. Ratchet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that was a little bit, they could have been more brave there. I agree with you. And I, I think you're right. I think that's why they held back on her character a little bit. I think they were pretty conservative. You know, actually what it reminded me of Stefan was, how they were kind of conservative with Miles Morales in the original Spider-Man game, mm. where it's like, you, you know, yes, he is Spider-Man, but you're playing this game for Peter Parker. I think very similarly, Rift Apart says, yes, Rivet is a good character, but you're playing it for Ratchet and Clank. Let's familiarize with Rivet first. Um, and I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more, maybe even just in the, in the backstory, um, because there are moments where Clearly, she has a relationship, like a, a nemesis relationship with Emperor Nefarious, the, the Dimension counterpart to Dr. Nefarious. And we get bits and pieces, but it's kind of through other characters. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think it would have been nice to see a bit more. Kit felt fairly fleshed out to me. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think uh, I have this theory that if I were to write an article on this game the theme I think it's exploring is fulfillment um, because 
it starts with Dr. Nefarious taking this dimensionator and he says, I've never won. I want to go to a dimension where I always win. But of course, when he gets there, it's not exactly what he expected. He runs into the same problems. Um, and Ratchet's whole sort of storyline in this is that he, Clank builds this item for him to go and find his family, the Lombaxes, but his whole problem is that he's he's basically Marty McFly from Back to the Future. He says, what if they don't like me? What if it's not what I expect? I don't want my, ex my expectations to be dashed. And I think that Rivet kind of exists as the person who desperately wants fulfillment. You know, everyone else is kind of dancing around it, but Rivet has very clear motivations. And there's even one part where I, I won't spoil the argument, but she argues with Ratchet basically saying, you're being a coward by not doing that. And I think that's, I would have loved to have seen more of that from her. Yes, exactly. I think that she has that potential and it is there. I think it might've even been the very, the, the very idea of this duo that there is some conflict between Ratchet and Rivet and that they both learn something from one another. Um, I think it would have just been cool if it was a little bit more daring in yeah. its approach to to dive into that story. Regardless, I must say I enjoy any game where I can fight fascism. You know, this is, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is this is really a game about like a like a dictator who wants to um, who wants to establish a, a total dystopian fascist state and take over the entire world. And uh, your goal is to just thwart his endeavors. Yeah, and rebel against it. And I, I must say that um, what a what a brilliant job they do of of making Emperor Nefarious and Doctor Nefarious so different yet so similar. Um, and I I felt you know the whole when when the Emperor is introduced, I kept thinking this dialogue, this manner, these mannerisms, this reminds me of something. And I realized maybe after after a, maybe an hour after he was introduced and had some dialogue. And I just started thinking, this is Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> just a guy who's evil and he loves it. And he's, you know, I'm going to take everything. It was a, what a great villain they wrote for him. <laughs> yeah, I think so yeah. too. The interactions between all the characters are fantastic, whether it's during the gameplay or in the, uh, in the cut scenes. I found it, to conclude things so enjoyable that I actually did the platinum trophy directly. It's uh, this is also, I would say, pretty achievable. So if you're out there, if you think about you wanna you wanna you're actually selecting games by thinking about them in the sense of trophies, which some people do, uh, then Ratchet and Clank is a really simple recommendation because you can adjust the difficulty level on the fly, which is something that's always appreciated. You get all the all the information you need to collect everything you might have missed out on relatively quickly. And uh, it's uh, throughout the entire game, I've constantly felt, I, I, I don't want to say just entertained, but I would say uh, a kind of wholesomeness. The wholesomeness that I would get from watching a Pixar film. Can I, so this is a, I may put this on our podcast idea list because it's something that I, I felt the exact same way, the wholesomeness. And I realized that a big part of it was that, um, I don't know if you felt this when you saw it, but the game thanks you at the end. Mm, it says, yeah. thank you for going on this journey with us. And I just realized that I am instantly um, endeared to games that thank you at the end of them. <laughs> and and that I just, 
you said wholesome. I think that's what this game is. Very wholesome, great experience. Uh, Returnal doesn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, talk about the sublime or the ridiculous to the sublime going from Returnal to Ratchet and Clank. That is actually part of the reason why I think I enjoyed Ratchet and Clank um, even more because I came from Returnal, I came from a really like dire, serious, very psychological experience to this world where it's just everyone is kind of a bit silly and over the top and you know in the end everything's going to turn out fine anyway like and you yeah. can just shoot at enemies and they're silly while they splash around and then you get all of these balls that you can collect it's so satisfying and i think uh, that is one of the reasons why i would say that if you have a ps5 then ratchet and clank is definitely a game you might want to play and i think too um because you said you hadn't played the others i don't think you need to i think it's no, a yeah. Very accessible story. Yeah. I actually I haven't played any Ratchet and Clank games before. I've seen a little bit of the previous game into the Nexus. No. Yeah. Uh, no, the previous one was just called Ratchet and Clank, right? The previous one was like the reboot they did. Yeah. The, the kind of remake, mm. reboot. Yeah. I've seen a little bit about that, but I don't know much about the story. And I could follow everything. And I, if you don't know the characters, there are dossiers in the game that you can briefly peruse if you if you want to familiarize yourself with them on that level okay dear listeners out there thank you so very much for listening see we thank our listeners always after every episode <laughs> very wholesome <laughs> if you enjoy this show then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate tell your friends about it leave a review on apple podcasts Follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com. Of course, go ahead and send us your wishes for further books or texts. It doesn't have to be books necessarily. It can also be articles or texts that we should read and discuss in the context of upcoming reading circles. And then I would say we'll talk again next week. Thanks, everyone.